another MLEX podcast. I'm Sam Wilkin, Brussels Bureau Chief, and today we're going to talk about the EU's relationship with China. The two sides are holding a summit on the 9th of April, and there's plenty to think about, from industrial policy to trade defence to data privacy. We're going to look now at the issues arising from China's model of state capitalism. And here to talk us through it are Poppy Carnell and Natalie McNellis, who cover trade and competition respectively here in Brussels. Hello, Poppy and Natalie. Hi. Um, Natalie, just start us off by setting the scene, please. What, what exactly is the problem with China? Well, I think things have reached a fevered uh, pitch in Europe right now, and it's really been spurred by the blocking of a big merger, the merger of Alstom and Siemens uh, railway companies. And the reason that it's relevant uh, to China is because Alstom and Siemens said they needed to merge in order to combat uh, Chinese competition. And China has a, an enormous uh, rail giant called CRRC, and it was created by the merger of its railway companies. And so the European railway companies said, hey, if China can do this and we can't, you're handicapping us in the global competitive world. But underlying this, um, I think there's the the sense that China is somehow competing unfairly on the global stage in a way that other giant economies like the US um, don't. What What's the basis of that? Is, is that based in... Well, it's a feeling, I think that it's a real concern that the Chinese companies are state-owned or at least state-sponsored. And therefore, they have very deep pockets and the ability to perhaps do things that companies that run under market economy principles can't really do. And there's, an in, there's a feeling that it means that there's an unlevel uh, playing field and that in order to level it, the European authorities need to loosen up. Okay, and, and that obviously impacts in, I mean, the Siemens-Alstom case was about the threat of this giant Chinese company coming into Europe, investing here, directly competing. Um, Poppy, there's also an issue with trade, isn't there, of goods being exported very, very cheaply from China and undercutting markets in, in Europe and elsewhere? Absolutely. I think um, it's fair to say that China has always been the biggest target for the European Union when it comes to looking at anti-dumping and anti-subsidy investigations. I think over 80% of our trade defence cases are against China. And that is because so many of our products that we consider being dumped comes from China, from whether it's um, state-backed companies, um, but unfair practices too. So that's why we've imposed um, tariffs on a lot of Chinese goods. Um, But Outside of the the realm of trade defence, I think European companies also feel that there's um, a lack of reciprocity when it comes to trying to enter the Chinese markets. Um, We have a lot of Chinese companies that have um, either had mergers or acquisitions within uh, the EU, such as um, Pirelli, the tyre maker from Italy, Uh, Volvo, uh, there's been... Uh, for example, a German robot maker called KUKA. Um, there's huge, huge investments in, in the EU bloc. And yet when you look at um, whether the same can happen in China, it's, it's just not the case. And that, in the eyes of many EU companies, is just simply unfair. Okay, that's interesting. And we'll, we'll come back later to this, this sort of political move to, to try and force open public procurement markets um, in a sort of reciprocal way. Um, but just staying for now on... On, on this issue of sort of unfair competition, the Chinese have been doing this for for ages, and it seems it's only now that people are really sitting up and, and taking notice here in the EU. 
Is that because China's moving up the value chain, making more and more valuable products rather than base inputs, or you know, what's at play there? China has increased its efforts to move up the value chain, and they've, they have uh, elaborated a strategy which is about moving into these uh, more high-value areas. And just recently, I, I listened to um, the German economy minister, Peter Altmaier, talking about how um, China used to be the workbench for European companies, and more and more Europe is being used as the workbench for Chinese companies, and China is keeping the high-value production for itself. Um, and so, yes, there is a, a real directed uh, effort on the part of China to move into uh, industrial areas that it didn't uh, try to capture before. And I think that's, that's the same also on, on trade defense, that... Um, uh, it's it's certainly no longer the case where it, it's just the cheaper end of products that that are being dumped. Um, very recently, um, the the EU imposed uh, dumping and anti subsidy tariffs on electric bikes from China, um, and really, it, I I think many companies would argue that um, the the level of quality from China was just as good as some of the competitors in the EU, but at a fraction of the price. You can no longer argue that, well, a Chinese e-bike, for example, might be cheaper, but it's not going to be as as good a quality. In some examples, no, indeed, the quality can be just as good as a European equivalent. Right, and that's always the the stereotype we had, you know, looking back 10 years or something of Chinese products, was they were, they were cheaper, but they weren't as good as something that was European or indeed Japanese or perhaps American. Exactly. With that changing, then suddenly there's no excuse anymore for the, the price difference, if you like. Exactly. I mean, just as, you know, just to say, of course, there are higher quality brands, too, that would argue completely the opposite of that. But yes, they, they can be found. Yeah, and I think it's true that European companies are feeling increasingly threatened on their own turf by Chinese companies. Yeah. And so, I mean, where's the political pressure coming from um, to do this? And what's the what are the questions now between the European Commission, between national governments, uh, between the regulators themselves? Well, I think it's also, you know, it's, a, it's a, an even bigger issue because, the, and I think Poppy may speak to this even more, that when the United States uh, takes uh, trade measures against China, it has a knock-on effect on Europe. So these issues are, are global, and European companies are feeling increasingly that their government needs to intervene in their behalf the way that other governments do, like the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would totally agree with that. There's very much knock-on effect on, on so many um, goods and, and sectors in, in, in trade defense. In, ter- in terms of where the, the political pressure is coming from, I think it is from member states. Um, but ultimately, when it comes to, for example, mergers and, and, and takeovers, it's, of course, in their own power to accept or, or reject a deal. Um, but I, I think from the EU level, the European Commission itself is really upping the ante in um, in what it's asking from Beijing, or at least that's what it's saying. Uh, when we look at the announcements that they've been making in, in the lead-up to this summit next week, the European Commission's own president, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, said just two weeks ago at the end of um, the EU summit that uh, there was no reciprocity in trade relations in general with China and that it was time to, to correct that. Um, so it's really it, it's it's coming also just from the Commission's own 
um, own rhetoric in, in terms of what we can now expect them to, to try and strike in its deal with China. Yeah, and so if there is this consensus, and I think it's fair to say there's a consensus that the EU has to do something um, to change its trading relationship with China, the next question is, what can it do? What levers does it have? And again, both in the hands of, of the national governments and, and in the hands of the European Commission. I mean, I think there's on the one hand, and I think this is what we've seen a lot with merger control, is this push to try to loosen competition rules in order to address this problem of Chinese competition. But the 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 counter-argument to that is, do you sacrifice uh, competition on the European market in the interest of global competition? In other words, are you going to say that uh, European consumers are going to pay more for their train tickets for a while because we have allowed uh, competition to be sacrificed in inside Europe so that European companies can better tackle the African market or better tackle uh, the Argentinian market. And that's a big issue. Is, is, it, is it right to sacrifice uh, European competition? Um, Margarethe Vester says, no, that's not where we should make our efforts. And she's talked about the fact that, okay, it's not inside competition policy that we should make changes. Rather, it's elsewhere. It's things like public procurement and the screening of foreign direct investments, um, which she says there we should really be, uh, she said in quotes, a bit more hard-nosed. As Natalie has mentioned, um, the, the two main policy areas that the Commission is really pointing at now is FDI screening, foreign direct investment screening, and on public procurement access. Just looking at FDI screening, this is now a proposal that has been agreed by EU governments and the European Parliament and will come into force next year. And when you look at it in, in the finer detail, it doesn't really bear any teeth. Um, the, the most that can happen if, say, a Chinese company tries to overtake a very strategic um, artificial, in artificial intelligence company in, let's say, Spain, and if other member states really don't like this, they can raise an alarm and say, wait, we need to have a review of this. And what can then happen is between the, the Commission member states, they feed in their, their, their own thoughts and opinions on whether Spain should allow that deal to take place. But it's still up to Spain to decide whether or not that deal will take place. So they will take their thoughts into consideration, but that's as far as it goes. Okay, that's interesting. And, and how do we define strategic here? Because clearly some investments are restricted already, not only from China, but from a, a whole... Uh, a lot of other countries, and in some cases from from all other countries, if you look at particularly sensitive areas such as you know defence or espionage, for example, how broad do we take? Do we take railways as strategic? Do we take AI as strategic? What we're talking about when you talk about strategic, I mean that can uh, strategic can really be in the eye of the beholder. And throughout the discussion, they've said they've mentioned things like um, communications networks the infrastructure, such as ports. There was a lot of controversy when China took over Piraeus, the port in Greece, and a, and a feeling that that would have been, uh, that could be dangerous uh, in the future for defense purposes. Um, as Poppy mentioned, there was a, a big takeover in Germany of KUKA, which was a robotics uh, maker. And that's the kind of sector that is highlighted as being, you know, capable of being reviewed through this uh, 
foreign direct investment screening regulation. And of course, we've got the whole uh, the whole argument around Huawei as well in five G, which is which will have to be a podcast for another day because that's a whole <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole podcast worth of uh, things we could talk about on Huawei. Um, so I mean, various various levers, FDI screening. Um, competition law. There's also the question of public procurement, reciprocity, property. What's yes, absolutely. So yes, the the commission has a proposal on the table on uh, trying to gain access to foreign public procurement markets um, that don't currently give us the the same access that we grant them. Um, this is actually a topic that's been discussed since 2012, and the proposal that we now have is a recast of a previous draft um, because it's so contentious among EU states. You have the liberal states who say that we need to keep our market completely open and anything else would be unacceptable. And then you have those saying, no, we need to be able to threaten with closing our markets if um, a a country such as China won't give us the same. And it's such a uh, a deep divide that so far there hasn't been any movement on that. So it's it's a troubled dossier. I'll say that first of all. Um, but even if the current proposal was adopted, really, when you look at what's in this paper, it doesn't have any teeth. Um, so looking at the worst case scenario, let's say a uh, Chinese company makes a bid for a, a railway. A construction project in Germany. And after consultations and talks, China still decides not to allow the same access for a European company. Um, then the EU can oblige the Chinese bidders for this railway project to increase their bid price by up to 20%. But that 20% would be a false price. In fact, the local authority, when it comes to deciding which project to go for, they will not have to pay that extra 20%. And if they are fully aware of the rules, then they will know that that 20% is just a false buffer. So actually, at the end of it all, it doesn't really count for anything. And if that's all they've got, and they're pointing at this saying, this is what we're going to use to gain access in countries such as China for our own companies. It's mm. questionable. <laughs> so it's a system that can be gamed very easily, in other words. Yes. And, and you can see why they do it. You can see why they make it a false buffer because, I mean, Natalie, you mentioned earlier there is this um, this potential trade-off of, you know, looking after European companies and competitiveness in the long term against, uh, you know, the disadvantage to European consumers in, in the short term. And that would be the case, wouldn't it, if we were to close markets off to Chinese companies um, assuming the Chinese didn't roll over immediately and open their own markets, then potentially the most competitive bidders would be excluded from those tenders. So it's a, it's such a difficult question of knowing where to draw that line. Yeah, again, it it, it smacks of sort of selling out competition on the European market uh, in the interest of a potential competition uh, abroad. And you might say in the meantime, is it right for Europeans to pay more because the markets aren't open in China, does that really help uh, the European competition on the European market at all? And I think that that's a, you know the the hopes for what can be achieved in the international uh, negotiating realm are are not very uh, let's say optimistic. And so Europe is not really uh, is not really putting all its eggs in that basket. And they're talking about 
changes that they can make internally in order to make the system work better for their own companies and to try to reestablish a level playing field with China. Yeah, and that, that, I suppose, leads to the question of how much progress can we expect at this, this summit on Tuesday with China? Yeah, I think that the, like I said, I think that the the provisions are sort of not very optimistic. I think that there's always, a, the, the negotiations with China are always very difficult and baby steps uh, come out of every, uh, out of every negotiation. Yes, I, I, I would agree that I, I don't think, um, despite the, the rhetoric from, from the European Commission, uh, the slightly stronger wording that they are using um, when they're trying to uh, send a message to China, um, I don't really see um, much progress. Just, just to add, there, there is also the, the EU and China investment treaty, which will be up for discussion, and um, there has been more statements from the Commission saying they want to have quick progress and to, to really seal this deal, but this treaty has been discussed for a number of years now, and the most they have done, they exchanged uh, offers last July, and the EU expressed its disappointment towards the, the Chinese offer, but they are very, very slow moving, and uh, we're not expecting much on that, so are there going to be fireworks at the summit when it comes to the investment treaty or anything on public procurement? Um, Doubt it. We, we're, <laughs> we're not convinced. And also, I think it's worth noting that when you look at the the Chinese side, um, at the moment, their main focus when it comes to trade negotiations is most definitely with the U.S. Um, the EU comes secondary to that. And until e the uh, U.S. and China have struck uh, a more comprehensive bilateral deal, the EU is going to be waiting in the wings. So... From their side, will they be anticipating any big bangs from the, the summit next week? Again, it's a no. Well, with our expectations uh, suitably managed, we will be watching it closely, of course, and, and we'll be watching it uh, beyond then as well, both in terms of the, the relationship and the domestic policy making that the EU will also do with, with half an eye on China. That's all we've got time for today. Um, it's time to say thank you and goodbye to Poppy and Natalie. Thank Thanks. you very much. And before I sign off, I'll remind you to please subscribe to our podcasts on your preferred platform if you want to hear more from our reporters around the world. I'm Sam Wilkin, MLEX's Brussels Bureau Chief. Bye for now.